Now, if you are wondering about Ruth or thinking about those of you that have gone through the uh, study through Judges, I just want you to understand that Ruth takes place between the ninth and 10th chapter approximately of the book of Judges. And it really is, uh, I just don't believe that you could, you could rightly understand Ruth without uh, studying Judges because it paints such a clear and amazing picture of what's happening. Now, we said last time there's two central themes that we see in the, in the book of Ruth. And those themes are, number one, when everything appears to be hopeless, God is faithful. This is a story that you have to, from the beginning, the onset, connect your heart to what's happening. Think about these three women alone in Moab, devastated, completely everything in their life eradicated. All hope is gone. This is... This is Job, but in a whole nother context. These women are so vulnerable and so uh, just powerless and so frail. And uh, the, the, the context of this is so dangerous. You, there's no hope here. And God teaches us that when it appears hopeless... Our Father is faithful. And secondly, that God is sovereign and He is good. And I'll never, ever say those two things enough. He's sovereign and He's good. Now, last week when we looked into this family, we saw that uh, it's a family living in one of the most unfaithful and dark times in Israel's history. And they... Uh, were experiencing unyielding tragedy and hardship. This was uh, not just going through a difficult season, but this is when you go through a very difficult season and then it's compounded by another difficulty and then it's compounded by another difficulty. And what makes, uh, what makes hardship really, really hardship is duration, time. When it lingers on, um, most of us can endure just about anything for a set amount of time, especially if we know going in that we have to deal with something, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But when it just lingers and you have no understanding of uh, any sort of timetable, it is excruciatingly difficult. Through their story, we're given insight and understanding into suffering, into suffering. And so the first chapter was hard because it was really just a conversation about difficulty and hardships. Now I want to say a word about suffering just so that we have some clarity. You might want to put a, an asterisk next to this next point. And it is that suffering comes in two forms. Some suffering comes through decisions uh, that we make when we have uh, control. We can control those decisions. They're, it's self-inflicted suffering. But sometimes it comes through bad circumstances we can't control. And sometimes those two things happen at the same time. And sometimes it gets very blurry. And many times we get ourselves as Christ followers in all sorts of trouble because we're trying to, uh, in our... our uh, tenacious desire to know and understand and discern uh, what God is supernaturally doing around us. I mean, we're, we're, we're horrible about that in so many ways. For example, we know that the Bible says that no one knows when the end is coming. No one knows that. Yet, we clamor for prophecy we clamor for predictions and 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 people to uh talk about you know well these things are happening so it appears like and yet but we know the bible says that nobody knows but we want to know and listen when we're suffering when i'm suffering i want to know now i know in Every arena in your life that God's ways are not our ways, that, his, that, that, that He's higher than we are. But in my life, I, I don't like that. I want to have understanding. And, 
And so we try to we oversimplify things and we don't realize the complexity of listen, if God's doing one thing, he's doing a hundred things at the same time, all the time. He's working in a lot of different ways. Now, the purpose of chapter one was to reveal how big our need is. And now we get to chapter two, and it's designed to reveal how big our God is. Because chapter one, you couldn't paint a picture of greater need than these three ladies. Then Orpah leaves. You know, her name means gazelle, so she ran away. And now we're left with Naomi and Ruth as they endeavor on this long journey together. I just wonder what it must have been like along the way uh, when it got dark at night where they had to sleep, the things they had to go through. The, I mean, every step had to be a step of fear, a step of uh, just a, a constant reminder, which again would maybe explain why Naomi was so grumpy by the time they finally uh, got back to Israel. Um, so... There's a mystery that's often, it's hard to explain. Whatever chaotic circumstances we find ourselves in, we can trust that God has been, is, and will be invisibly at work. Now, it's one thing to say that and to fill blanks in on a piece of paper and to say in your heart, yes, I agree with that and, and amen. I, but it's a whole other thing to, have you ever been in a situation where uh, maybe... You were in a hardship and someone said to you, you know, how is it that you are able to go through such difficult things and remain so positive or hopeful? Or, and then you're looking at someone, especially someone who's an unbeliever. Good luck trying to explain that to them. I mean, where, how do you even begin to explain to somebody who doesn't know God, uh, the hope that's within you. It's very difficult because you, you just realize in that moment just how mysterious and strange what it is that's about to come out of your mouth is to their ears. Our confidence comes not in the presence or absence of suffering as Christ followers, but in the conviction that we have a God who is sovereign and a God who is good. You see, the sovereignty and the goodness of God are not thwarted. They're not uh, hindered. They're not affected by our circumstances. Whether or not we are flourishing or whether or not we are struggling, God's sovereignty and goodness remain the same. And this is why it's so important to build your theology rightly, firmly. Build it on principles that will withstand suffering. If you have theological views about God that collapse under the weight of suffering, then you've got a faulty understanding of who God is. Ruth will set that straight. I promise you Ruth will set it straight. Let's look at Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, in verse 1, where it says a man of great wealth, you might want to underline that and, and write over the top. That is a Hebrew phrase that does mean a man of great wealth, but to say that it only means that is an excruciatingly narrow translation. Uh, some of our newer literal translations uh, do a better job with this. Some of them uh, call him a mighty man of valor. He is a worthy man, a worthy man. He is a... a this is, this is a much more than just a man of wealth. It's talking about his character. That he is a person of great character. Now this is why I'm pointing this out to you. For those of you that have studied Judges before or went through the study of Judges with me, then think about who in the book of Judges had great character. Nobody had great character. 
There were there were no there were no uh, there were no phrases like this about people and judges. It was a disaster, and yet here we are in the same context, in the same time frame, and the scripture saying, "But here's a man who was different than than everyone else around him." Boaz was great in many ways. He is a he's a great man. He has uh, great power and he has great wealth. They're all three sort of connected. And you could go on and say, and he has great character. He is great in uh, many diverse and wonderful ways. And Boaz stands opposite of Ruth. You see, these two lives intersect. And what I want you to see is the, 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 just the oppositeness of these two people. Here's this great man of great character and great wealth. And He's highly respected and very successful. Then you have Ruth, who is a foreign widow. She's generally despised and she's marginalized by the law. Now, in order to understand what it would be like to be Ruth, you have to understand sort of the not only the, the context of the time, the darkness of the time in which it happens, but also God's law. She's trapped between these, uh, these two laws. The first law in Deuteronomy 23 concerning the Moabites. God says, An Ammonite and a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, the Pethor, Methab. Potamia to curse you. Remember Balaam and Balak and that big disaster? But listen, it's deeper than this. God has issue with the Ammonite and the Moabite because of their, uh, because of their beginning. Remember, we learned that uh, Ammon and Moab were the two sons of the daughters of Lot. So they came from this incestuous relationship that Lot's daughters had with their father. And so they were cursed, if you will. Then you, so that's part of it. And so here's these people. So basically, anyone who is in Israel and knows the law of God sees a Moabite. And you're basically just a piece of trash. Then... You've got Deuteronomy 24. You've got this law about reaping. It says that when you reap your harvest in the field and forget the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it, for it shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord God may bless you in all the work of your hands when you beat your olive trees, that you should, go over, uh, that you should not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You see that? The stranger, the fatherless, and the widow over and over. And when you gather grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So we have, we have this, uh, the law concerning the Moabites, Ruth being a Moabite, and then you've got God's law about gleaning. Now let me explain a little bit about this. Gleaning is the practice of allowing the poor to follow the reapers Let's see here. The poor to follow the reapers into the field. So as they're harvesting, they obviously will pass through. They don't get everything. It's a very imperfect uh, task. It, it, it's, they don't have giant uh, $200,000 computerized combine machines that are harvesting grain. They just have a bunch of workers in the field using their hand harvesting and so there's going to be a lot missed they're they're carrying bags on their side and they're dumping it in the bags as they're getting it and a lot of it's going to fall out onto the ground so on and so forth and God says whether it's grain or whether it's olives or whether it's a vineyard that you are to not you you shouldn't eradicate the crop you should leave some there for the poor now um, let's talk a little bit about this it's God's law it's his tool it's his tool for providing for the poor who cannot provide for themselves. So many people think, well, this is God's welfare system. And in a sense, it is God's welfare system. But really what it is, is God teaching us about the correct way to manage welfare and to think about 
welfare. That God's all for welfare, but He has a very specific way in which uh, He lays it out or mandates His people to do it. And so there's two components to uh, what God would see as an effective way. It's a twofold process of helping those who cannot help themselves. Number one, God blesses those uh, who provide by making them more fruitful. Did you notice that in Deuteronomy 24, uh, the Lord said that when you reap your harvest, you shall not go back. It's for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So the first principle of welfare is that God blesses the provider, the giver, the one who has a heart for the poor, the one who is, is willing to give. Now, the second part of the process is, is that God blesses those who partake by giving them dignity through work. Here's what God doesn't do. God doesn't provide for the poor by allowing the poor to just sit and have the wheat delivered to them. I'm not going to say anything else about that. I'm just telling you that there is a right way to handle welfare and there is a wrong way to handle welfare. And if I don't stop talking about it, we're completely going to leave the, the realm of what we need to be thinking about. So come back in and stop thinking about politics. I'm just letting you know that God has a solution for everything and that's one of them. Now let's come back to where we're supposed to be. Here's what I want you to look at. Verse 3. Very important. She left, remember, Naomi says, go, my daughter. And the Bible says she left and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And here's the critical phrase in these verses. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, that's what I would be highlighting right now. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Just like you happen to come to the place where somebody uh, shared the gospel with you and you happen to have ears to hear in that moment. And maybe people had done that hundreds of times before, but it wasn't the time. Or it was, a, it was that particular day. You happened to go to that particular church and hear that particular sermon or whatever the case may be. That all the things that just happened to happen to happen. And here we have Ruth who just happens along to this field belonging to Boaz. Now let's just think about this for a moment of, of, of what just happened to be number one Ruth and Naomi just happened to come home at the time of the barley harvest now the time of the barley harvest is the beginning of Passover you see it precedes Passover and so the Passover celebration is the celebration of the freeing of God's people from Egypt and so it's the celebration of the rescue of God. God is a rescuer. So you think of Passover as the celebration of God as a rescuer. Now, here are these two hungry, starving ladies who have just traveled a great distance, come walking into Bethlehem, the house of bread. They come walking in. They've just left. They left there because of famine. They went to famine, and now they're coming home, and they happen to come home right at the time that God's people are preparing to celebrate the rescue and there's all of this barley to eat. That just happened to be. Then Ruth just happens to come to Boaz's field who just happened to be this godly man. Now, I don't know, we don't have a record of how many barley fields there are in Bethlehem. But considering the fact that the town is named the house of bread, let's suffice it to say that there's a bunch of them. And there's a whole bunch of them all over the place that don't belong to Boaz. In fact, most of them don't belong to Boaz. But she just happens to come to the one that belongs to Boaz. Now, this is a Moabite who has no idea where she's going or no idea what she's doing. She doesn't even know anybody. Except for Naomi. Ruth just happens to find favor in the reaper's eyes who allow her to work. See, what we're going to see is, is that 
she starts gleaning in the field before Boaz even says anything to her. Now, it may not just leap right off the page to you as it does to me, but trust me when I tell you this. If, for example, last Sunday we talked about this conflict in Acts chapter 6 between the Hellenistic Jews uh, and uh, their widows not getting the portion, there, there's conflict amongst the, the believers in church. How do you think it goes down with the masses out there, the poor out there, Let's suppose, again, here we go. I'm going to mentally get you off track again. Let's suppose that uh, at the first of the month, if that's when it is, that the welfare checks come out. Then uh, the mailman on that particular day drives up and he has a big box of checks and he just as he's going through the neighborhood, he just hurls them out onto the street, and whoever's the first one to get them gets to keep them. How many, how many uh, slow, elderly, uh, not healthy people are ever going to get a cent? How much, how much cooperation and sharing do you think is going to be going on? Now, when this Moabite lady, now who's in there gleaning? The poor people are in there gleaning, and they have great need. And they're, they, they feel entitled to be gleaning, right? You see all the similarities to situations we have to deal with? Now this foreigner comes into their field and starts gleaning. Who is a Moabite? Who, who doesn't even have any right at all? What are the chances... That apart from, Boaz hasn't even seen her yet. That they're going to just say, well, that's fine. Just let her go ahead. No, they're not going to do that. But the Bible says that's exactly what happened. That doesn't make, that doesn't make any uh, earthly sense whatsoever. That that's just going to happen that way. Then on top of that. Ruth just happens to be working in the field at the time Boaz shows up. Now, Boaz is a very wealthy man. I don't know how many fields he owns, and I don't know how many acres all of his fields encompass, but here's what I do know about Boaz. Boaz doesn't stand in the field all day. Mm -mm. Just like uh, Arthur Blanks, who, I mean, I've been here all day, but I, I think his Atlanta Falcons did pretty decent today. He owns the Atlanta Falcons. He also, the way he made his hundreds of millions of dollars is he's the owner of Home Depot. When was the last time you think he rung up a two-by-four in a Home Depot? Not going to happen. Boaz isn't hanging out in the fields all the time. He's got workers for that. He's a successful man. He's moving around and he's just looking at the big picture of his operation. But the Bible says that he just happened to be at the very field at the very time that Ruth happened to be gleaning in the field where she happened to be allowed by the reapers to go in. It's just a coincidence. And all of this just happened to take place in Bethlehem. It just, it's just a coincidence that all of this is taking place in the birthplace of Christ where the name means the house of bread. And all of this is just a gospel foreshadow, and it's, it's showing us the sovereignty of God who is involved in the smallest, minute details of your life. God's involved in those details. He's involved in the moment that you leave your house and the phone rings, and you stop and talk on the phone for five minutes and then get in the car and start driving. He's involved in which red lights you catch, believe that or not. See, sometimes I am not really clear about that. I'm like, God, are you despising me today? What's happening here? He's involved in, in those, those, those moments, those inconveniences. Those, he's in the... Listen, and if you think that, well... 
God's not involved in that. Look at, then you cannot deny the sovereignty of God in the smallest little things, in the most minuscule person's life it could possibly be. Nobody means less to the world around her than Ruth does. Nobody is smaller in the eyes of, of the culture than Ruth is. Now look at verse 4. Now, behold, Boaz comes from Bethlehem, and he says to the reapers, you see, he's, he's at home base. He's, he's, at the, you know, he's in his office you know, up on the fifth floor overlooking the, the sprawling meadows as the CEO of Boaz Incorporated. And then he says, yeah, I think I'm going to go out and check on the fields. So he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. Now, that's just giving you an indication of his character. This is how he greets his workers. This is the kind of guy you want to work for. Amen? Yeah. And, he's, and they said to him, the Lord bless you. See? They have like a, 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 a Chick-fil-A culture there. Right? And so then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? See, he notices everything. He says, hmm. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, Well, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Now, who, what, who, what house? Listen, she didn't go all the way back. Where's Naomi? Naomi is where Boaz came from. Ruth didn't truck it all the way back to Naomi. What this is telling us is that Ruth took her break along with the other reapers and drank water that is provided for Boaz's people. And so she went to the house and drank some water and rested. Verse 8, and then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she falls on her face, she bows down to the ground, and she said to him, Why? Have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Now, Boaz sees this woman who clearly is out of place. Now, notice when he asks his superintendent of reapers who she is, he doesn't say, oh, that's Ruth. No. He says what? That's the Moabite. You understand? That's all she is. She is a person who is reduced to a Moabite. There's no name. There's no uh, discussion. She's just a Moabite, which tells you everything about her you need to know. And it also tells us that the story of Naomi's return and this Moabite lady that she has in tow with her when she gets back has spread across Bethlehem and that everybody knows. The word's already gotten out about what's happened. Now, when Boaz says what he says, he's giving you an indication of how dangerous it would be to be Ruth. Now, there's a story that precedes this chronologically about a Levite traveling in the time of Judges from Ephraim, and he has his concubine with her. And it's probably the most uh, difficult place in Scripture with regards to the violence, the sexual nature of the violence, the, the horrific depravity 
I mean, it's, it's unparalleled. It's almost hard to read. When we studied it on Wednesday night, I found myself struggling just to, to read what it says. It is so graphic and horrible. But to make a long story short, it tells the story of this concubine who, through a uh, terrible set of circumstances, winds up um, outside in the streets at the square being raped by a gang of men repeatedly from dusk till dawn. And she's left in a bloody pile at the doorstep of the home that the Levite is staying at. And when he opens the door to leave, to go back, as he's stepping over her, and the Bible says her bloody hand is on the doorstep, It's almost he kicks her and says, get up. And he throws her lifeless carcass across a mule. And he begins to head along his journey. Now, it's not just horrible that that happened. It's also horrible that that happened in the square of the city. And nobody said anything. And nobody helped. Nobody nobody saw a problem with it. And listen, this wasn't a Moabite. Now, if that happened prior to this, and that was in the city, then just try to picture Ruth, who is evidently an attractive woman. She's not in the city. She's out in the wilderness. She's out away from civilization, which is far more dangerous. She's in the field. She's surrounded by men, and she's a foreigner. If ever there was anyone who was in great danger of being mistreated, who literally just was probably, you know, had something over her head and never even looked up and was just shoving grain into her bag as hard as she could, the whole time just hoping, probably in her mind, knowing someone's going to grab her and throw her over in the bushes and God knows what was going to happen to her. And all she could think about is, well... If I can just hold on to this grain so me and Naomi will have something to eat, I can endure whatever they're going to do to me. Because it's not a question of if they're going to do it. It's when. And then Boaz shows up and says, Hey, by the way, nobody's going to touch you. You understand the gravity of the moment? You understand the need of this woman and her situation? And so she's so overwhelmed that when Boaz shows her compassion, she falls down and worships. She's worshiping. What he just said to her is so unbelievable. You mean I can, I'm safe to glean here. I don't have to leave. I can, I can follow along the, the, your, your servants and I can glean among them, which they get the best part, see? His servants would then get the best part of the gleaning. And then there would be people who were more impoverished behind that who would come along. And so she gets to go up in front, even though she's a a Moabitess. She gets to go up in front and he's going to protect her. And she gets to drink water from the vessels that his workers go and, and get. She's like, she worships. She feels unworthy and unlovable and unredeemable. She's as low as a person can get. And the text doesn't tell us. We, we don't, you know, I mean, we get her reaction. We get her falling on her face before him. What, what I, I want to know is as I read this and I, I just close my eyes and I try to envision this moment. I try to think about what this must have been like. I wonder if she's thinking to herself, is this really happening? Is this a trick? Is this a joke? Is this a trap? Is this, is this real? Is he really saying this to me? She is very self-conscious of her cultural acceptability. Her unworthiness to be loved as a widowed foreigner has nothing. You see, she's... 
because of her uh, country of origin, she's unclean. Before she says or does anything, she's already perceived as disgraceful. Ruth's response is a picture of what a genuine response to grace is. You see, any of us in the room who have ever genuinely encountered grace, we fell on our face and worshiped or we didn't encounter grace. If you didn't respond to the gospel as a lost person receiving salvation and with the with the the reality of how unbelievably unworthy you were to receive that and and there wasn't a a, a bit of context in there where you're thinking is this actually happening to me I mean you I'm actually forgiven of all my sin I've been cleansed from all of my unrighteousness that I'm I'm justified I'm found not guilty in the sight of God that this is actually happening to me this is the only response to true grace people who who meander to God and who respond to a cultural understanding of who God is and who see salvation as making some profession and signing a card and getting dunked in some water, I'm sorry to say, will perish in eternity in hell. That is not what salvation is. Salvation is a life-altering, unbelievable encounter with unmerited favor from God. That's what salvation is. It's what Ruth just had this glimpse of the grace that we, if we're not careful, we can take for granted because we, we live as new covenant believers in this grace day in and day out. Every day we wake up and we walk in grace She never experienced anything like this before. Look at verse 11. Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and how you have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. You see that moment? You see that that disbelief about what's happening? And then she says, comforting your maidservant, and then she even realized, like he doesn't know that. She feels so unworthy that she's saying, but, but, I'm not, but I'm not like them. You know, I want to shout at the Bible like, we know that, Ruth. You're a Moabitess. I mean, he gets that. But she is so beaten down. I, I, I don't see her. Look, she's not looking him in the eye. She's just cowering down. And Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her. And she ate and was satisfied and she stuffed some in her pocket, didn't she? She wrapped it up and put it in her pocket. She's like, a, she's like an orphan. She's eating this bread and dunking it in vinegar and she's thinking, how long has it been since she ate like that? And she's thinking about Naomi. And she's thinking, this is so unbelievably good. She's probably shoving it in her mouth. And then she starts sticking it in her pockets. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. And do not reproach her. And let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. 
Now, Boaz probably felt like saying, Honey, why don't you just take that bread that's in your pocket and go back and give it to Naomi? You don't need to go back out in the fields this afternoon. But that wasn't going to happen, was it? There was nothing going to stop her from going back in that field and gleaning. Why? Because what she was experiencing in this moment right now, she doesn't know if tomorrow that's going to happen. This, this has been wonderful, but listen, all this is is a moment. And she has to get everything from this moment that she can get. She has to get everything because she doesn't know what the next moment is going to be. Talk to some of our foster parents and we'll tell you stories about, you know, we were sitting there last night uh, just before bedtime. Lisa and I, you know, we just had this big birthday party for Kaylee and I looked at Lisa and I said, you know, on one hand, If you're a foster child and you just happen to end up at the Carnes house. It's like you won the foster kid lottery. Is basically what happens. And, you know, especially as soon as it doesn't take you long to realize that Miss Lisa, the kinsman redeemer is going to shower you and bless you and love you like nobody could ever be loved in the history of the world. But let me tell you something. The reality in their mind, no matter how good this moment is right now, they've learned that it can be snatched away tomorrow. And so even in the glory of the moment... Even when they're sitting in your lap and they're hugging you and kissing you and you're talking about wonderful things and they're safe and they're secure and everything's right. In their little mind, they know tomorrow it can change. Ruth understands that. She's not going to not be in that field gleaning. So Boaz, his grace is a picture of of a genuine response to her faith. You see, she responds as a picture of someone's response to genuine grace, and then Boaz is a picture of a genuine response to her faith. Because Boaz is a picture of who? Jesus. And so we're getting a picture of how Jesus responds to genuine faith. So in faith, she had done what did not make sense. She left everything. Boaz even says, I've heard about all the things you did. You left your homeland. You left your mother, your father. She walked with conviction the foolish path. What everyone around her said, you are an idiot. Are you crazy? Why would you go with Naomi? You don't know anybody there. Are you kidding me? Do you know how the Israelites treat the Moabites? You're a widow. You, it's a death sentence. You should, what are you doing? You have a family in Moab. You can stay in Moab. You can, be, you can live. Why would you do that? And Naomi's saying, don't come. Stay here. Leave me alone. And she walks directly into, directly into her helplessness. She walks straight into what makes her most vulnerable, most helpless, most at risk. Trusting that God would be gracious. I mean, if there is a picture of faith, it is this. Now notice, Boaz commends her for doing right by Naomi. But is that what's really the issue here? is really, is the reason Boaz is blessing her is because she was faithful to Naomi. No, he says it right there. He said, yes, I've heard of all the good things you did. But you left 
You left your God and came to the Lord. You came from a land of idols. You left that behind to come and to worship the true God. Here's the principle. God's grace doesn't fall out of the sky. It doesn't just fall out of the sky into the laps of the needy. That's not how it works. It comes through the faithful actions of men and women who know His grace. Listen. We have a tendency sometimes to think that we're just walking along and the grace of God just drops out of the sky on somebody and boom, they become a Christian. They get saved. They have ears for the gospel or that that's what happened to you. That is not what happened to you. That's not what happens to anybody because that's not how it works. That is not ever how it works. What does the Bible teach? It teaches us that our actions have meaning. They have meaning, and Boaz is a perfect illustration of this, and that God is made known through doing. Listen, it was through the action that Ruth took. It was through the action that Boaz took. The grace of God fell on Ruth's life through the actions that she did and the actions that Boaz did. So think of it this way. Just as the grace of God comes through Boaz, we, followers of Christ, are to show His grace to others, to those who culture deems unworthy, to the extent that it is inconvenient, difficult, and costly. In other words, to simply sit in a pew and to pray for the lost and to do nothing about that is, it's a disgrace is what it is. It's a joke. The grace of God comes to into Ruth's life through action. Listen, what if Boaz would have said, well, bless you, sister. I hope things work out good for you. I'm just saying, what if Boaz acted like most Christians act today? What situation would Ruth have been in? We, as the body of Christ today, especially Western Christians, will oftentimes say with great joy that we're the hands and feet of Christ, and it's the laziest hands and the sorriest feet the world's ever seen. No, you're not the hands and feet of Christ if you're not using your hands and feet to show the love of Christ to the lost people around you. You have to do something. You see, there's this declaration woven into these words that is teaching us the way the gospel moves and how God uses us. And you see that we we do something. We go forth from this place, charged to know that every unbeliever that we encounter, we first bring grace followed by truth. Grace followed by truth. Grace followed by truth. Listen. I don't have time to get into this, but the truth of the matter is, is that every, my prayer is that every member of Michael Memorial would be the greatest employee on their job, would be the most wonderful neighbor in their neighborhood, would be the most uh, loving, compassionate, caring person that other people know, that you'd be the most patient and the most uh, uh, kind when you were stuck in a long line at the store, that when you finally got up to the cashier, rather than barking at her like everyone else, you would have something kind to say to her, that, you, that we'd be the people that were stretching ourselves out on a limb, that we were inconveniencing ourselves to be a blessing to other people. That's what God's called us to do. It's difficult and it's costly, which is why so many people don't do it. But we've got to devote ourselves to being a people of God that do what God's called us to do. Amen. We've got to move on. 18. Then she took it up and she went into the city. And her mother-in-law, by the way, we're talking about over 100 liters of grain. She's hit the jackpot for one day gleaning. She's lugging this. She looks like the Grinch that stole Christmas rolling back into uh, Bethlehem, okay? So she takes it up and she goes into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So instantly, like, uh, uh, what did did you just rob Colonial Bakery of what just happened here? 
So she brought it out and she gave it to her. Uh, she gave to her what she had and, she, and what she had kept back when she was satisfied. Verse 19, then her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today? Well, well, what happened? Where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And she said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be the Lord. Now wait, now, now this is bitter Naomi. Remember at the end of chapter 1, she said, don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. For I went away full, which is a lie, and I came back empty, which is true. She left empty, came back empty. She's bitter. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabite has said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out uh, with, this, with his young women and the, that the people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Essentially, if she had subsequent days of gleaning as successful as the first day, by the time harvest was over, she would have had more than enough grain to supply her and Naomi for an entire year. That's how much would have uh, been gleaned if she took an ephah in the day. Now, you see this hope begins to shine. Not just in Ruth's life. But see, Ruth, Ruth didn't come home all super hopeful because she doesn't know who Boaz is. And let me tell you something. Does Ruth know? That, how could Ruth even... She has no idea what a kinsman redeemer is. She's from Moab, right? She's clueless about all this. This is such an obscure law from so long ago. She doesn't know anything about this. This would have never come up in her conversations with her husband. So she doesn't know. All she knows is today was a good day. But Naomi, she knows. And hope now, you know, the good news from Ruth, then you see hope begin to blossom in Naomi. Come on, we got to hurry. Although Ruth and Naomi are, are they're a little safer. They got a little bit of food. They're a little bit more secure. They're still unwed widows, still living alone together and still surviving day to day. In other words, okay, it's been a good day. Something good has happened today. But tomorrow, it could be snatched out from under us. If, if all we have is this big... They probably would look at that big sack of grain and think to themselves, now we've got to ration this out. You know, we're going to get a half a piece of toast every day and that's what we're going to be able to get by on and this is going to last us out. I mean, you know, that's the way they're thinking. It's a little bit better. But it's not what they need. I remember when I first came to church. And I first started hearing the gospel. And a little bit of hope started to light up. Out there somewhere in my future. But listen. Do you think I went home dancing and prancing around like woo? No, I mean it would look. It was just. I, I mean, I wasn't even sure that it was hope for me. It was just there's potentially, possibly hope that maybe God is real and maybe someone like me could know Him. It's just beginning to... So darkness is broken apart by a tiny little glimmer out there, but it's a long shot from a Q-beam. Here's the principle. We need more than relief. You need more than relief. Listen, they need more than relief. One sack of grain doesn't solve their problems by any stretch of the imagination. It's just some relief. That's all they got. Relief is good, but that's not what they need. There's no real hope in God's plan if His ultimate goal is only to relieve our earthly pain and suffering. Let me tell you something. When I finally got, got around the gospel, when God finally put, put the gospel around me, if I would have understand the gospel as 
What this is going to do is give some relief to this current disaster that your life is. Forget about it. Because let me tell you something. I was smart enough to know that even if you solved my problem today, I was just going to make another mess right down the, the street. That everything I'd touch was a disaster. That everywhere, I mean, I couldn't do anything right. And so relief, I didn't need relief. I needed rescue. That's what we need. And that's what these two ladies need. Listen, relief, yes, it's good. Temporarily. That's all it is. It's temporarily good. But there's no, there's no security in that. You, there, there, there's nothing to, there's no anchor in that. In, in one good day and, some, and someone who said some things to Ruth, I mean, listen, she's going home. She's thinking, wow, what a day. But hey, there's no promise about tomorrow. You see, there's no security in, in writing me a check to help me in my situation if it doesn't transform, if he doesn't transform my situation altogether. If all you're going to do is meet my current disaster with relief, well, then what good is that? Listen, oh boy, we got to hurry. You know what we don't want to do? You know what Pastor Rod never wants to happen here? We never want to go on the mission field and bring relief. I'm not interested in relief. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in rescue. That's why I don't want to do anything anywhere that's not completely grounded and founded in the gospel mission centered around a church. If I'm not putting a church amongst the people who don't know Jesus, I'm not interested. Because what good, what do you do to come rolling into town and then you leave them and they're there with them? I mean, you're not, you're, you're not helping. It's not relief. Listen, I'm not, I don't get on a plane and fly halfway around the world to bring relief. When I leave my family and my fellowship and go somewhere... It's all about rescue. If it's not rescue, I'm not going. And you ought not either. And be very careful because there's a lot of mission work that's just a bunch of relief. Now, is all relief bad? No. But I'm talking about when you're going somewhere where the gospel's not, do what Paul did. Don't make up your own plan. It's no good. Naomi knows they need more than relief. See, she knows that. Because she immediately starts quizzing Ruth, getting the information, and she's hearing all this, and she's connecting the dots because she knows what the law says. She knows this is her culture. And she starts realizing, whoa, wait a minute now, we got things. Boaz, the minute she said Boaz, bing, the light just lit up. Somebody just cranked up the fuse on the, the little kerosene lantern down there. It just came up. When Naomi hears the name of the man who owns the field, hmm, she has hope for redemption. See, she knows. See, next Sunday we're going to talk in depth about what a kinsman redeemer is and what does that look like and the purpose of it and all of that. But you just have to suffice tonight to say that there's hope. The, the beacon of hope begins to shine in the moment she hears the name Boaz. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer in the family of Elimelech. Meaning he is the one charged with the responsibility to rescue them. Now he doesn't have to rescue them. But he can rescue them. And Naomi knows that. She understands that. Boaz is a picture of Jesus. And a mighty beautiful picture I might add. We could say tonight as we... Leave here tonight. God, make me like a Boaz to the people around me. I, I want the people that I encounter that are hurting and suffering and rejected, I want them to say, why are you doing this? What, what, why, are you, why are you helping me, loving me, caring for me? Why, why would you concern yourself with me? It's the things I want to hear. Jesus, who, even more so than Boaz, he's a great man. 
with great wealth. That's the understatement of the century. And great power, the understatement of the century. Who enters into our sufferings to do more than relieve. He came to rescue us. Now remember I said that, that Ruth, she set on the, the, the path, the, the, the crazy path that no one would take. And she actually pushed into what was causing her to suffer, what was making her hopeless. <laughs> Jesus, what, what happens the day before the incarnation? You know, do you ever think about the last day Jesus is in heaven? Before his departure? Tomorrow's the day. What was the conversation like with the angels? Now, one more time, Lord, could you tell me one more time? Now, what are you going to do? Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going down there, and I'm going to be among them. I mean, those pathetic, disgusting, gross, worthless Moabites. I'm going down there, and I'm going to live among them. I'm going to be one of them. And I'm going to give my life to press into, to press into what the world, everyone else is going, you'd have to be crazy to do it. I'm going to press into what's going to be pain. I'm going to press into agony. I'm going to press into suffering. You see the pictures here? The shadows that come out of this passage? And like Boaz will do, he does that through more than just giving us food or money. He does that through Adopting us into his family. You see, I'm, I am all for grace. I am all for grace. I want you to be grace dispensers to people around you. And I don't ever want you to think, no, I'm not going to help them because, you know, I don't want to just give someone relief. No, here's the problem. You just give them relief when you dispense grace and then you walk away and you leave it there. You have to follow that up with truth. You have to come back around it. You see, there's another conversation that needs to be had. Because when you show grace, you, you, you break down the barriers. You get invitation into places that you wouldn't be invited into otherwise. The problem so many people make is they, they show grace and then the barriers break down. And then they go, well, have a nice day. And they walk away. Don't walk away. That's the moment. That's when you come back. That's when you build a relationship. That's when you cross that bridge and you bring the gospel to bear in that moment. And listen, it's whatever happens, that's, not, that's between them and God. What God's called us to do is merely to be faithful. Merely to be faithful. You see, Jesus looks at what's unlovable and unworthy and unwanted. It's what He does. That's what he's scouring around for. Remember, he said people who don't think they're sick, oh, I haven't come for them. No, I didn't, I didn't come for the ones who have it all together. I came for the unlovable, unworthy, unwanted. And what does he do? He forgives us. He cleanses us. He removes our fears and our shame. And then he frees us. To live with a new identity. Because you see, Ruth, think about Ruth. She needs more than just grain. She even needs more than just protection. She needs more than just provision. Ruth needs identity, doesn't she? She needs meaning and purpose. She needs to be freed from. She needs to pull that, that uh, hoodie off her head. And stop hiding her face and realize, wait a minute, that she's a person of worth. She's created in the image of God. That she matters. She needs identity. Amen. She needs identity. It's what you need in me. That's what we needed. That's what I needed. I needed to know that not only that God was real, but that He would love and save me. So Jesus does this not apart from pain or suffering, but through the cross he transforms pain that once destroyed our faith into something that now refines it. So here we are having this beautiful conversation about Ruth. 
Don't you just love Ruth? Don't you just want to? Don't you just want to meet her? Don't you just want to? Man, I I just want to. I, I just want to meet her. I just want to see her. I just want to talk to her. I just want to hug her. I just want to say, oh, thank you, sister. Thank you. I'm so grateful that God told your story. It's the way I feel sometimes when I'm walking through the halls around here and I run into one of these former Moabites. And you got this big smile on your face and all the problems in your life aren't fixed. All your circumstances haven't just smoothed away, but there's joy in the midst of pain. There's peace in the midst of suffering. And instead of coming to me and saying, Pastor, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. I know all that's wrong. And they say, Oh, I've been reading my Bible. God's been speaking to me. It's so good. Pray for my husband. Pray for my wife. I just feel like soon they're going to hear. Pray for my prodigal. I feel like, I feel like soon they're going to return. There's, there's just hope. There's hope. There's Ruth. Now what better conversation could we have and come to the Lord's table? I mean, is there one? No. It's the most beautiful picture of what we celebrate right here at this table. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand.